0: After a long, stressful week, isn't it great to come together as the people of God and worship? I I have to tell you that as we were singing and I had my bank robber's mask on, I leaned over to Doreen and I said, if I pass out, please catch me. I was like, did any of you feel like that? So I'm going to take it off right now. I want to invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. One of the most recognizable sentences among Christians in the latter half of the 20th century comes from this tract. I actually found a version that was in uh, Mandarin, and the line that you're so familiar with goes like this, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Raise your hand if you've heard that. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And this line was popularized by Campus Crusade for Christ and was the first step in this booklet. I, I have had dozens and dozens and dozens of these in my backpack, in my manpack, my briefcase, uh, in my desk that I used to give out on a fairly regular basis. But the, it was the first line in the four spiritual laws. Some of you very likely were trained to share the gospel using this booklet, The Four Spiritual Laws. And while the heart behind this sentence, that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, is well-intentioned, I want to argue that that is probably not the best place to begin the gospel presentation. Now, I need to tell you, that this, this, for years, has even gone against migraine because this is how I was trained to present the gospel. I mean, I, I would approach an unbeliever, and the first thing in my mind is to tell them, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But I have since been convinced and persuaded that's not probably the, the best place to begin. Why? If you tell your unconverted friend that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for their life, most of your friends, especially in America, especially in a, in a Western mindset or worldview, they will respond most likely with indifference. You see, if God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, then what do you have to be worried about? And so, once again, this isn't the best place to begin. The first thing I would argue that every unconverted person needs to hear is this. God created you for his glory. I think that's where we begin the gospel presentation. Look at Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7. It says this. It says, everyone who is called by my name... Whom I created for my glory. Whom I formed and made. Yesterday for me was a great day. Did anyone have a good day yesterday? Yeah. Especially the Shibes and the Veldmans. And We came together and, and had a chance to see uh, Kirk and Brenna come together as man and wife. Finally, right? At least that's what they were thinking. And one of the charges that I gave them... One of the challenges that I gave them is, as a newly married couple, I charge you to go public with the glory of God. Use your marriage to be a reflection of the great God that you love and serve and worship. May your marriage be a vehicle to shine forth the glory of God to the nations. Well, you know, Kirk and Brenna, they're not the only ones who have that charge before them. Each of you and myself, we have that mandate. Every person was made, as Isaiah 43 says, to showcase to splendor, to, to showcase the splendor and the magnificence and the majesty and the glory of Almighty God. Every creature, every created being, is designed to carry out the divine mandate of Habakkuk. Listen to what he says: For the earth will be filled with the knowledge. Of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Do you know what? That will happen one day. It has happened in part, but it will happen one day when the glory of the Lord surrounds the universe and every person will come before the Lord Jesus Christ on bended knee. Every thought, every plan, every action, every motive, indeed, everything that we say and do should reflect the great glory of our sovereign God. Let me make this very personal. Every time I sip a double shot of espresso, as I did this morning with a dollop of whipped cream and cayenne pepper. How's that one for you? You do it all to the glory of God. Every time I I swing the golf club, as bad as it may be, just ask Nate, you do it all to the glory of God. Every time I step into this pulpit, every word that comes forth from my mouth is to be done for the glory of God. Every time I walk, every time I run, every time I get on my road bike, every pedal is to be to the glory of God. There is a, a short article that John Piper wrote, oh, almost 20 years ago, and it, I don't think he intended it to be famous, but it has become really quite famous, at least in my mind. And it's an article that he wrote about drinking orange juice for the glory of God. I'll never forget the first time I read it. I thought to myself, drinking orange juice for the glory of God. Are you kidding me? Because I had in my mind that things that you do to the glory of God are the grandiose things or the, the great big things, the massive things, the, the, the building of buildings and the building of churches and the discipling of the nations and all those grand things. But Piper, he taught me something that day that every sip of orange juice as trivial as that might seem, is to be done to the glory of God. Jorina and I have a friend in Lagrand. She recently went to be with the Lord. Her name's Bertha. And Bertha was a dear, older woman. And she read that article. And she used to tell me, she probably told me dozens of times, Pastor Dave, this morning I got up and I drank my two cups of coffee to the glory of God. It made an impact on her. And that was the charge before Kirk and Brenna, and that is the charge for you and I as well. Whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we do all to the glory of God. There is a big problem now. And many of you know what that problem is. The major problem with this grand design is the creatures that God has fashioned to glorify Him have failed to do just that. Romans chapter 3 verse 23, we looked at it many months ago, says this, that we fall short of the glory of God. You know that's a verse that I memorized probably as a six or seven year old, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I used to say it over and over and over, and you'd get prize after prize after prize. And I don't think it was until I was in college that I started to, to really come to grips with the magnitude and the importance of that verse. Isaiah 43, God has created every person from Mother Teresa to Joseph Stalin and everyone in between to glorify his great and awesome name. But the problem is, as Romans instructs, that we have failed to do that. We have fallen short of his glory. Daniel Fuller responds like this. And let me just give you a, a, a kind of a, a backdrop to this quote. Most of us are familiar with the definition of sin that goes something like this. The sin is missing the mark. Have you heard that definition? Sin is missing the mark. And that, that is a, a biblically accurate definition of sin. But I want to argue that that it should go further than that. Let me read this definition by Dan Fuller. He says, we should understand our total depravity or our sin primarily to consist in heaping the greatest insult upon God by refusing to regard him as trustworthy. So, definition number one sin is missing the mark and I think we'd all agree that's bad we don't want to miss the mark all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God but now when we hear this added insight from Dr. Fuller that sin at its very essence at the very root it's failing to regard God as trustworthy let me ask fathers if you're a father or a mother, and you tell your son or daughter to do a certain thing or to not do a certain thing. In this case, let's say you you warn them not to do, you fill in the blank. And they choose to disobey you. The fact that they disobeyed you is bad to begin with, but what makes it especially hurtful and disappointing? They have failed to trust you. Now multiply that by a billion, times a billion, that when we fail to regard God as trustworthy, what do we do? We heap a great insult upon the great worthiness of his name. Now the consequence for falling short of God's glory, we all know very clearly, it's that we fall under the wrath of God. And the word of God speaks clearly and painfully about our status as creatures who have failed to glorify him. Look at a few of these things on the PowerPoint. We are separated from Christ, so says Ephesians 2.12. We are strangers to the promises of the covenant, Ephesians 2.12. Once again, also in Ephesians 2.12, we have no hope and without God in this world. We are hostile to God, Ephesians 2.14 says. We have a, I'll call it, a holy hatred toward God. That's what Romans 8.7 says. And then next week, the focus of our time together will be this, that we are enemies of God. If we're apart from grace, if we've fallen, for, fallen short of the glory of God, Paul says that we are enemies of God. Listen to God's response. Once again, Dan Fuller helps us. He says, God cannot remain indifferent to those who are going in the opposite direction. What's that mean? It means that all of us who have fallen short of the glory of God, God just doesn't say this, oh, it's okay, I'll let you off the hook. Right? Do you know that if God said that, we would know something about God? He was not a great God. He is not a holy God. He is not a perfect God. He could not be considered as a loving God. For to let someone off the hook simply is not loving. We need to be held accountable. Fuller continues, We therefore conclude that it is just and right for God to consign the unrepentant to an eternal hell. Do you know how many people in our culture reject the doctrine of hell? Do you know how many evangelicals embrace the doctrine of annihilationism? That's the doctrine that says, I believe in a hell, but I don't believe in conscious eternal torment. Let me say this, that we as a local church here at Christ Fellowship have a, a robust belief and, 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 and a doctrine In hell, right? In fact, I'm so convinced of the importance of this doctrine. As we move through the book of Romans, I haven't decided where it's going to come yet. I have an idea, and it'll be a surprise for now. I am considering, at a strategic point in this study, doing a topical study on hell that will probably last anywhere from three to four weeks, right? So you go home at lunch, and you can say, let's talk about hell, For a month. And I'm so convinced of the importance of this doctrine. That we need to hear it. We need to see it. We need to embrace it. And the reason that I think we need to get intimately familiar with hell. Is that if we believe it. If we embrace it, then and only then will we be motivated to go out into the marketplace of ideas and tell a lost world they're going there, right? When we come face to face with the description that especially Jesus gives us of hell, how could we not go out and tell a lost world that they will go there unless they turn to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, we'll see where the Lord directs in the days to come. Now, thankfully, thankfully that God, in his infinite wisdom, he planned a way to redeem a people for his own possession. Amen? Thankfully, God planned a way to redeem a people for his own possession. Amen? This is exciting stuff. Here's the reason. Jason, you deserve to go to hell. Darlene? Darlene's just shaking her head, yeah. Uh, Where's Galen? Galen! You know it. And it's so good to see you this morning. So I could go to each person. I'm not singling Galen and Linda out. I'm not singling the Vanderveens out. I'm saying every person in the sanctuary, including myself, and every person in the world, we deserve, help me, We deserve hell. That's why when they ask me at Starbucks, how you doing, man? I'm better than I deserve. What are you talking about? I deserve to go to hell. That's when this conversation gets really weird, right? (laughs) Do you want extra whipped cream on your lot? Now it's not that big of a deal, right? He deserves to go to hell. Thankfully, God has offered good news to people, that's you and I, who have failed to glorify him as they ought. The title of the message this morning is Operation Salvation. I want to invite you to stand to your feet as we read this passage together. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, even in in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Lord, I'm eager to open uh, the word of God this morning and to study it together with your people. I pray that we would come Uh, more familiar with the bad news, but more than that, I pray that we would revel and delight in the good news and that we would leave an encouraged people. During these dark days, that's one thing that, that we need the most. We need to be encouraged, and it seems strange to say that in light of what we've been discussing in the last few minutes, that we deserve to go to hell, but... We're so excited to see your redemptive plan as it unfolds in this passage. And so, use these verses to build up your people. If there's anyone here that is not yet a Christian, may today be the day of salvation. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, the title, Operation Salvation, I must admit, has a bit of a triumphant note to it. This should sound like good news news for people who have failed to glorify God and are destined to pay the price for their rebellion for all eternity in hell. And you ever thought about that, how long eternity is? It's a long time. That's longer than this sermon. It's a long time. In order to understand, however, and appreciate the good news, you must first pay careful attention to the bad news. And so the way I have designed this message is very simple. First, I want you to understand the bad news. And if you're a note taker, Roman numeral number one will be the bad news. Roman numeral number two will be the good news. So a two-point sermon. Number one, the bad news. As we think about the bad news, and we've we've looked at that in 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 a very short form at this point. I want to help you to see the profile of every bad creature. Now, here we are in 2020, and I say we're going to do some profiling, and a large number of you are probably nervous at this point. Because we have been taught over the last several years that profiling is a bad thing, especially in a racially charged, politically uh, ramped up environment. But when we consider all of God's creatures, you need to understand this, that the word of God never shies away from profiling. Have you noticed that? The word of God never shies away from profiling. The passage before us paints a very revealing portrait or a profile, if you will, of every creature. And so I am convinced that we need to see it, we need to accept it, and we need to... Meditate upon it if you're not a Christian yet and most of you that know me well know that whenever I preach I always assume that there are at least a handful if not more of Unconverted people that I'm communicating with and so let me just say a word to you if you're not a Christian This may sound offensive to you This may hurt your feelings. This may rub you the wrong way But I say this and the Bible says this in love and in truth, and should you accept it, then you will be in a position to receive the good news. Notice three things in this profile. Number one, in verse 6, Paul says that while we were still weak, that's the first thing I want you to see, that every creature apart from grace is weak. In the Christian Standard Bible, the translation is helpless. Or in the New International Version, it's, and I like this a lot, powerless. We are weak. We lack moral strength. The word literally means a person that lacks moral strength or courage or will. Hold your finger in Romans chapter 5 and go to the book of Acts just for a moment. I just want to show you one additional place where this word that is translated as weak and to see uh, to show you how it appears. Acts chapter 4. Look at Acts chapter 4. Beginning in verse 8. Let's start in verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, the apostle Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, he said to them, Rulers of the people and the elders, if we are being examined today, concerning a good deed done to a crippled man by what means this man has been healed. This should fascinate you. That word crippled is the same, comes from the same exact Greek word translated weak in Romans 5, 6. And so some might argue that weak might even be a little bit of a weak translation. Maybe. Maybe. So whether it's weak or whether it's helpless or whether it's powerless or whether it is crippled, that's where we stand before God apart from grace. And what do I mean by crippled? I mean our mind, our heart, our emotions, our will. The the, the mantra of American evangelicals is what about free will, right? You've heard me run this to death. And my response to that is what about free will? right? You are, someone help me, you're crippled. You're, you're weak, you're powerless, you're helpless apart from grace. Now, here's the thing, especially in America, no one likes to be considered weak in America. You see, people spend time in the gym to do what? To build their muscles, to steer clear from weakness. We go to the academy, we go to the school, we go to the educational system, we go to the university to guard against intellectual weakness. Over the last several years, I've been fascinated, and I myself have personally been interested in this, about the kind of food that we put in our bodies, right? So we know at this point, if you put a ton of sugar and refined flour and junk food in your bodies, what's going to happen? You're going to be really weak, and you're going to get really big, and you're going to have neurological disorders. And we have a whole host of diseases that people in the West especially are afflicted with. Why? Because of the kinds of things that we put in our bodies. And so weakness is not something that you typically want to put on your resume. Weakness is not something you typically advertise or brag about. Now, the weakness that Paul refers to in this passage is spiritual weakness. So let me give a couple of things that he that, that he implies here. First, in Ephesians chapter two, verse one, Paul says very clearly that we are born into a position where we are spiritually dead. Stephen Lawson says, in this state, unregenerate people are completely unresponsive to the things of God. Just as a corpse cannot see, hear, or make choices, one who is spiritually dead cannot properly respond to the things of God. End quote. Some of you have heard me say that if I ever have the opportunity to teach a preaching course in a Bible college or a seminary, day number one, field trip to the cemetery. We're going to the cemetery. We're going to stand amidst the tombstones. We're going to have every gentleman stand at the pulpit and preach to corpses. Right? Because that's, that's what it is to preach to unconverted people. We are in this position of spiritual death. It gets better. We're also spiritually blind. We are unable to see the light and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are spiritually Incapacitated. We are enslaved to sin and unable to come to Christ apart from God's empowerment. John chapter 6, verse 44. Additionally, we are in a position of spiritual slavery and bondage. Remember what Jesus said? Anyone who commits sin, and we do, is a slave to sin. And so that's the first thing I want you to see in this profile. We are weak, we are helpless. we are powerless apart from grace. Number two, also in verse six, notice that every creature is ungodly. At the end of verse six, Paul refers to the ungodly. And here's a, a Greek word, it's an important word. It's the word Sabone, S-E-B-O, with a line over it to give it definition, and Sabone. That's not the word that appears here. The word say bone is the word godly. Now we all know at this point in our journey, whenever you put the little letter A in front of a word, what does it do to the word? Cancels it out. Let me illustrate. How many of you would say you're a theist? You believe in God? Hopefully many of you. Hopefully all of you. You're a theist. What happens if you put the A in front of Theist. Now you're the opposite. Now you're an atheist, right? So sebon means a godly man or woman, a godly person. But the word that Paul uses is a sebon. That is ungodly. That's who we are. A person who lacks proper veneration toward God. The, The impious, the profane, the unholy, the sacrilegious. Hold your finger once again in Romans 5, and I want to have you turn with me to to three passages. And the first would be in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And my strategy here, I just want to give this to you in advance. My strategy is I want you to see something that's very interesting. You know what? I, I, I'm going to skip this. I want to go to the next one and I'm going I'm to move along quicker. I want you to go to number three and see that Paul refers in verse eight to each person apart from grace as sinners. And we know that very well. We are sinners. And what I want you to see now in these passages that kind of jump the gun on is, first of all, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, my strategy is I want you to see how ungodly and sinner are together. They're, they're teammates, if you will. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. Notice, for the ungodly and sinners. You see how they're teamed up, ungodly and sinner. Now, also go over to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, and if, if you want to get ahead, you can also move ahead to the book of Jude. So 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 18. Peter says, and if the, the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the, do you see it? The ungodly and the sinner. Finally, in the book of Jude, we read from Jude earlier in the service. Look at verse Fifteen. It'll start in fourteen. It was also that that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied saying, Behold the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones, that is angels, to execute judgment on all and convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Do you see those words paired up again? The ungodly and the sinful. That word sinner means a person who has disobeyed or violated any of God's commands or neglected any of the duties that God puts before us. It was either last week or the week before I, I commended a, a book to you, a, a children's catechism. It's the, the New City Catechism, edited by Tim and Kathy Keller. Here's the description of sin in that catechism. Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, rebelling against him, and living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. If you're listening carefully, you know why Roman numeral number one is entitled the bad news. I mean, this, this, is, this is bad, bad news. This is what every creature needs to understand, that apart from grace, we are weak that we are helpless, that we are ungodly, and that we are sinners. Now, at this point, we have two major problems. First, the bad news runs against the grain of what we are typically taught in our culture. Our culture teaches that we are good people. Typically, I, I, I will warn those who go to the university to study psychology as a Christian, I want to tell you that if your your son or daughter goes to study psychology, rule number one, you will be taught that man is basically good. Now, here's what's tragic. Guaranteed you'll be taught that in the secular university, but in many Christian universities, you will also be taught that man is basically good to the shame of every Christian institution that emphasizes that. In addition, our families are not typically teaching children that they are weak and ungodly and sinners. Frankly, I don't believe that many people in our day believe that we are weak, ungodly sinners. Thus, if that's your presupposition, there is no need for good news. At that point, the sermon is essentially done. If you say, Pastor... (laughs) that doesn't apply to me, then nothing else will apply. The gospel becomes unnecessary in such a context. The second problem is that many churches and pulpits have jettisoned the law of God. God's law, I must remind you, is an essential component of biblical preaching. You've heard some of the emphasis on the law of God this morning. When we were in Romans chapter 3, we learned about the law of God. Paul says, since through the the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's how we learn that we are sinners. Walter Chantry, a book that I read many years ago called Today's Gospel. I highly recommend it to you. says, the absence of God's holy law. For modern preaching is perhaps as responsible as any other factor for the evangelistic impotence or powerlessness of our churches and missions. Simply put, eliminate the law of God and preaching will be emptied of its power. One writer says it is God's law that convicts of sin. Until its condemnation of particular evils is forcefully pressed upon the sinner, he will not flee to Christ for mercy. People are not turning to Christ because they have no sense of sinning against the Lord, that's why we don't say step one, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. We tell people God, called, God created you for a purpose to glorify his name. But here's the problem. You have failed to glorify his name. And as a result, you fall under the almighty wrath of God. Here's my question as I get talking very quickly. The last time you shared the gospel, did you tell your friend, Did you tell your family member that apart from Jesus, that apart from grace, that they will stand under the almighty wrath of God forever and ever and ever? Isn't that what the unconverted needs to hear? When I became a Christian in 1974, I remember the biggest concern I had, and concern is is not the right word. I was scared, spitless of going to hell. Here's what I hear from parents. Oh, I don't, I, don't my, I don't want my six-year-old to be afraid of going to hell. I want my child to be afraid of going to hell. Don't you want your children to be afraid of going to hell? Every person should be afraid of falling under the almighty wrath of God. And so I want to to burn the bad news into your soul. I want you to wrestle with the bad news. I want the bad news to to touch you in the the deepest possible way. I want the reality of your true condition apart from God to lead you to the very corridors of hell where Jesus said the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I want you to, to feel the flames as it were. It was Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welch pastor, who I've quoted frequently in our Romans series, said this, we shall never really understand the love of God until we see what sin is in the sight of this holy God whose wrath is upon it. That is to say, I want you to be wounded as it were with the bad news because when you're sufficiently wounded guess what you will be ready and excited to hear the good news I hope you're there at this point even as a converted person it was Samuel Bolton who said this when you see that men have been wounded by the law then it is time to pour in the balm of gospel oil It is the sharp needle of the law that makes way for the scarlet thread of the gospel. And so for Christ's followers, let us begin by telling our non-Christian friends and families the truth about their condition apart from grace. Let, let us tell them the bad news first, that they are weak, that they are ungodly, that they are sinners, and once they settle on the bad news, once they let the, the bad news marinate on, on their sin-stained souls, then they will be in a condition to have you, the evangelist, and me, the evangelist, tell them the beauty of the good news. So, are you ready to hear the good news? I'm tired of talking about the bad news. Notice number two, the good news. The good news And as you know, we like to summarize every message with kind of this capstone statement, this big idea. My preaching professors called it the homiletical idea. No one has any idea what that means. What is the the kernel of truth that I want you to take away today? It's found two times in this passage. One time in verse 6 and another time in verse 8. And here it is. Christ died for us. That's the good news. That's the good news. First, I want you to see some facts concerning his death. Some of you are wondering, we've got at least 15 minutes left. How in the world is he going to stretch 15 minutes with four words? It's going to be hard to confine it to 15 minutes. Number one, I want you to see that the death of Jesus Christ was a real death. It was a real death. The word that is translated as died means this, it means to pass from physical life and lose all bodily attributes and functions necessary to sustain life. Let me illustrate. In John chapter 11, do you remember Jesus had a friend who died? Do you remember his name? Lazarus? you remember what the King James said about Lazarus? He stinketh. (laughs) It's my favorite verse on the King James. He stinketh. If I were to ever go back to the King James, that would be the reason why. So I could just quote that over and over and over. He stinketh. Well, Jesus told his friends, Lazarus has died. That is, he's gone. That is, he's not breathing. It's like Jesus was saying in medical terms, he's flatlined. If you want sound effects, that's that's Lazarus. He was dead. It wasn't a phony death. He was dead dead in John chapter 19 Jesus is on the cross and knowing that it was now finished said I thirst imagine Jesus bearing the weight of your sin on the cross a a jar the author says is full of sour wine stood there and they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth and when Jesus received the sour wine he said it is finished and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit the man jesus christ someone help me he died he died this was not a this was not a shell game this was not a parlor trick he wasn't like some scholars say, uh, it, he didn't swoon, he, he fell asleep and he looked like he was dead and then he just, he took a little nap and he woke up later. No, no, no. Jesus, the man, died dead and buried. Notice number two, another fact concerning the, de- the death of Jesus. It was a timely death. And this needs some explanation. Look at verse six. While we were still weak, at the right Time. When I say time, what's the first thing you think of? Yeah, I I wish you could see it. I saw a bunch of people do this. You you think of your watch. Now, in the Greek language, there are two major words that help us to describe time. The first one you know. Every single one of you know this. Even the little kids. It's chronos. We all know what chronos is. If you don't know what it is, you're going to hear about it in just a minute. This is chronos. Right? This is 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock. This is Pastor Dave's gone overtime today, o'clock. Right? That's chronos. It's what time is it? That is not the word that is used by Paul in this passage. For while we were still weak, at the right time, he's not saying at a certain time, at 3 o'clock or 9 o'clock or 12 o'clock, Jesus died. That's not what he's saying at all. Paul uses the other word translated It's the Greek word chiron, and it's not important that you remember that. But it's distinct from chronos. This word means that Christ died at the appropriate time. Not chronos, not watch time, but he died at a significant and appropriate time. Put it this way, he died at the time that God decreed that he would die. I love Galatians chapter 4. That says this, but when the fullness of kairos, time, not chronos, but kairos, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. He sent forth his son at just the right time in redemptive history. Born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This reminds us that God planned everything. You know that, right? God planned everything about the death of Christ, including the time and the place and the circumstances of his death. Lloyd-Jones says it means that A way back before the foundation of the world, before the world was ever made, before man ever existed, before time had ever come into existence, God planned this mighty and glorious way of salvation. He planned it in detail. He planned that at a given point in time, his son would come into the world to make atonement. And that atonement would provide the means for all of God's elect to receive everlasting life. Number three, I want you to see that it was a remarkable death. It was a remarkable death in many ways, and Paul explains one of those ways in verse 7 of Romans 5, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. I think you understand his argument. Number four, look with me and see that it was a prophesied death. In John chapter 12, Jesus said this, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show what kind of a death he was going to die. In Acts chapter 2, we read that this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified him and killed him by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it listen it was the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world number five and as I wrote this in my notes I you ever write something you say should I really write that do I really believe that and so I contacted my best friend pastor in the Bay area I said Dave was the death of Jesus a glorious death It just sounds strange to say it. It was, can can you imagine a a loved one of yours who died? My my aunt just went to be with the Lord a couple days ago. My Aunt Gloria. I'm not prepared to say it was a glorious death. It was a sad day for our family when Aunt Gloria died. But when Jesus died, it was a glorious death. My friend Dave sent me a text back and he said, that's the greatest thing you could ever say about the death of Jesus. It was a a glorious death. The great Puritan theologian, John Owen, said the primary purpose of the death of Christ was to glorify God. You remember that song that got popular about 15 years ago that goes something like this? I probably shouldn't sing it, but I will. He thought of me above all. No, he didn't. He didn't think of you and I above all. He thinks, and Jason and I have talked I don't know how many times about this, that's just a song we're not going to sing at Christ Fellowship. Why? It's not true. When Jesus died upon a wooden Christ on a wooden cross, he did not think of me above all. He did not think of you above all. He was thinking of the glory of God above all. And so Owen continues, in everything that he does, God intends first to display his own glory. All things exist primarily to bring glory to God forever and ever. And so it was a, a glorious death. And number six, it was an, an effectual death. Young people might say it's a death that, that accomplished something. It, it worked and we see this. And I have to tell you all these things I'm going to read. Every one of these could be multiple sermons. And so brace yourself. The purpose of the death of Christ was to bring People to God. The purpose of the death of Christ was to save people from their sins. That's my favorite Christmas passage. Matthew chapter 1 verse 21. The purpose of Jesus' death is to deliver people from the domain of darkness. It was to create a people who do good works. That's why Jesus died. What did he accomplish in his death People are reconciled to God by it. We'll see that next week. People are forgiven and justified. People are made clean and holy by it. People are adopted as God's sons by it. People receive God's glory and everlasting life. On the cross, Jesus Christ defeated the devil. 1 John chapter 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Does anyone love that verse? That is just such a powerful verse. Look at number seven and we'll close. It was a death that put God's love center stage. Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. I, I hope by this point you've come to the place in your Christian pilgrimage where you become a big fan of the word but. It's a a powerful word. It's a word that we should grow to, to love and cherish. It introduces a God here who steps in and demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That word shows in the English Standard Version comes from a word that means to give evidence for, to prove. How does God prove that he loves me? How does he prove that he loves you? He dies on a cross. He sends Jesus to die on a cross. And you're all familiar with that word love. It comes from the Greek word agape, which is the, a, 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 a strong, positive emotion of regard and affection. It's the highest form of love in the English language. Listen to how the love is displayed to Israel In Deuteronomy 10, 15, yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples, you are his this day. And I I couldn't skip over Isaiah chapter 62. And I have to confess to you, I'd I'd never noticed Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5. Do you know where I discovered it? Any music fans? I discovered it in a Stephen Curtis Chapman song. I'm kind of embarrassed to admit that, but Stephen Curtis Chapman sings this song and he cites Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5, that says this. For as a young man marries a young woman. So those of you who were at the wedding yesterday, you, you have this etched in your mind. As a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. As the bridegroom rejoices over a bride, so shall your God rejoice over you as I had the best seat in the house yesterday, right? I could look into Kirk's eyes, I could look into Brenna's eyes, right? They whipped their rings out and they said their vows, and I could see the bride groom rejoicing over his bride, and to see the bride reveling in the love that her future husband had for her. That's how God sees His people. He rejoices over us. Now, I want to close by having you look with me at the love of God. This is a a passage of Scripture that there's no way we could finish this message without focusing on the love of God. And I want to have you put put your your make-believe seatbelts on, if you would. All the young people always like to, I always say, right? Put your seatbelts on because... Some of this might come as a little bit of a challenge to you. And I think that's a good thing. Because uh, I I think we're in a position where we need to be kind of stretched like a balloon. We need to re-examine what we know and believe about the love of God. If I could speak just candidly, whenever a pastor goes away from his notes, that's a really dangerous thing. I think we've gotten a little soft with our view of the love of God. I think we've gotten a little mushy. Right? I think we've gotten a little sentimental with our views of the love of God. So I think it's time that we, we get more robust, right? We get more biblical and we, we really we begin to work hard at understanding, understanding what his love is. And so let me have you focus on several things with me. Number one, it is a costly love. God's love is a costly love. Hebrews 2 verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Do you see why I say it is a costly love? Also, it is a sacrificial love. We know John three sixteen very well, for God so loved the world That he gave his only son that whoever whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Number three, it was a motivated love. I shared my favorite Christmas verse with you in Matthew 121. She will bear a son, speaking of Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Number four, it was an obedient love. I think you're very familiar with Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, where Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Number five, and I need to go out and drink a water for this one. This is where it might get challenging. I want you to see that the love of God is a contra-conditional love. That might sound strange to you. Contra-conditional. In fact, I think it's a word that an author made up. That God's love is contra-conditional. I want to encourage you, if you want to look into this more In fact, it would be untrue to call this a book. It's a booklet. It's only 14 or 15 pages. You can read it in one sitting, written by David Powlison, a man who went to be with the Lord not too many months ago, a couple years ago. The book is titled, God's Love Better Than Unconditional. And I checked this morning to make sure it was available on Amazon, and I got a little bit of a shock because this 14-page booklet that probably cost three cents to produce is on sale for 24.98. That's what I did too. Some of you went, uh, Julie kind of went, right? But I kept scrolling, and I found another link where it was $3.99, which is still overpriced, right? This is worth $4. God's love is contra- Conditional. This is a term coined by the author, David Pallison, and he argues that God's love, listen, this is going to run against the grain of what most of you have been raised with, that God's love is much different and better than unconditional. You see, the notion of God's unconditional love is something that I've wrestled with for years and years and years. I'm not quite sure how to make sense of it. And so, for years and years and years, I just accepted it without question. And then David Pallison, he just crushed me with this little booklet. Here's what he says. God cares too much to be unconditional in his love. It's really funny because I can tell I have your attention. You're like, whoa, this this is different than what I've heard in the past. The author grounds his argument now in four concrete truths, and see if you can make sense of this. Number one, it is true, he says, that conditional love is a bad thing. That should eliminate all your objections to this notion of contra-conditional love because I know what some of you are thinking, wait a minute, I've been taught for the last 40 years that God's love is unconditional. Now the pastor's saying, is it something different? Well, David Pallison is, it's true that conditional love is a bad thing. Number two, it is true that God's love is patient. That's a good thing. It is true that God's love is a good gift. That's a good thing. And it is true that God receives people just as they are. And I'll speak personally, that's a really good thing. I'm glad that God receives me just as I am. Now, he admits that the phrase unconditional has a noble theological lineage and describing the grace of God. But the term is loaded with difficulties. In fact, I would, I would venture to say that if you were to think, even where you're seated right now, you, you could come up with some, some potential roadblocks to using the notion of God's unconditional love. And so, he suggests three biblical improvements. He says, first of all, it is clear that unmerited grace is not strictly unconditional. While it is true that God's love does not depend on what you do, it very much depends on what Christ did for you. So, in that sense, it's highly conditional. You see his argument. Then he says God's grace is something more than unconditional in that it is intended to change the people who receive it. And then finally he says unconditional love is filled with cultural assumptions. Such a term implies the minimizing or even elimination of expectations on the one receiving the love. In other words, I love you unconditionally, do whatever you want, it doesn't even matter. And that's what I've struggled with for years. And so, Paulson he commends the notion of contra-conditional love. He says this, God has blessed me because his son fulfilled conditions I could never achieve. Contrary to what I deserve, he loves me. And now I can begin to change, not because I can earn his love, but because I've already received it. And so he never really says, don't ever use the phrase unconditional love. He just says there's something better and more biblical than unconditional love. It's this notion of contra-conditional love. And so if you want to learn more about that, you you can in an hour sit down and read this little booklet, and I think you'd walk away deeply, deeply encouraged. Number six, this is unprecedented and unparalleled love. A few of the songs that the worship team leads us through talks about God's amazing love and truly God's love is astounding. I love 1 John 3.1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And ne- let us never forget that God's love is sovereign love. One commentator remarks, Christ died for those who were bad, bad, bad. Can you relate to that? Weak, ungodly, sinful. He said, in them, there were no goodness, there was no goodness that could have attracted this love. In the death of Jesus for sinners, God demonstrates his own sovereign love. Let me leave you with some takeaways Four important takeaways. First, acknowledge that you are weak. You can tell where this is going. Acknowledge that you are ungodly. Acknowledge that you are a sinner. And believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's, as your pastor, it is so, I, I wish you could see what I see. Because when I said believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, I look around the sea of faces and saw several of you just light up with a huge smile. Because you're thinking, there it is. There it is again. It's the gospel. And some of you have been walking with Jesus for 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or more years. But you know you need to hear and rehearse the old, old story that Jesus died for you. Let me leave four practical points of application and we'll close. Number one, reflect on the love that God had for you An eternity past. Think about an eternity past as as God, before he created anything, he saw you. Your name, your first name, your last name. He saw you as a, a person who was helpless, who was weak, who was ungodly, who was a sinner. And what did he do? He had an agape love for you. So reflect on that love. Number two, remember the love that God has for you today, not only in eternity past, but today and for eternity future, for all of eternity. Number three, rejoice knowing that your name is written in the book of life. We can walk away this morning and know if you have trusted in Christ that your name is written in the book of life. And finally, And this is where the rubber meets the rose. I was, the road, not the rose. I was sharing with you last week that I'm preparing a a class on evangelism. It's something that is important to me and important as your pastor and important that we engage in this kind of evangelistic activity. And so resolve to tell the nations about the gospel of God and his love for all the nations. And what we're going to learn in this class is that no matter how old you are, no matter how much experience you have doing it, that you can do it. I think what we're going to find is that some of those who don't think they can do it will be numbered among the best evangelists among us. Because what they do is they simply open their mouth. And they simply share the gospel of Christ. It's been attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Some have disputed that he said it. To me, it doesn't matter. But the quote that is attributed to St. Francis of Assisi is, uh, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. It doesn't matter who says it, but it's wrong. Preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Because if we don't ever get to the point of proclamation, how will they hear without a preacher? So this morning, I'm not the only preacher at Christ Fellowship. If you're a Christian, you are a proclaimer. You are a heralder of the truth. And so may I encourage you to resolve, to tell the nations about the great love of the Lord Jesus Christ. The truth point is simply this. Christ died for weak, ungodly sinners. And all God's people said, amen. What a blessing. Let's pray before we sing these final songs. Father, thank you in eternity past that you, you saw us in our weakness. You saw us as those who were ungodly. You saw us as sinners. And despite all those things, you sent Christ to die for us, that you, you proved your great love for us by sending your one and only son to die on that cruel cross. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that in eternity past, you came into covenant with the Father, that you came, you lived the life that we could never live, you died a death, that each of us deserved to die, and on the third day, you were raised from the grave so that we may have life eternal. Thank you for delivering us from the power and the penalty of sin. As we say so often, we look forward to the day when we will be free from sin the very presence of sin. We look forward to the day when you, Jesus, will make all things new. No more pandemics, no more suffering, no more tears, no more pain, no more cancer, no more Parkinson's, no more Alzheimer's, no more curse, and we will worship you for all eternity. May that be reflected in the songs we sing now. In Jesus' name, amen.